For my ally is the Force. And a powerful ally it is. Life creates it. Makes it grow. Its energy surrounds us. And binds us. Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. Hello and welcome back to another Mind Matters. I'm Elon Martin, your host, and with me in the studio today is Harrison Keeley, Adam Daniels, and our roving reporter, Lucien Koch. Today we're going to be revisiting and really expanding upon Ian McGilchrist's The Matter with Things, which we have touched upon in previous shows. I have to say that, you know, when we first got these two volumes, I found uh, tackling them, given everything else we're looking at and examining, kind of daunting. Uh, this book weighs approximately 47 pounds alone. It's got over 700 pages of text. And um, there's a real kind of imperative now with all the things that we're seeing and wanting to understand about the world to... Uh, to try and keep uh, as up-to-date and abreast of information as possible. So to uh, devote any amount of time to a single book, or in this case, two volumes of uh, intellectual inquiry, is uh, it's a commitment. It's a commitment in time and focus and energy. And there has to be a, a very good reason, I think, to want to do all that. And having just started the introductory chapter recently, I have to say it is very well time spent. Why? Well, in the past few shows, we've talked about, uh, just as an introductory um, foray into McGilchrist's um, exploration, what the main differences are between the left and right brains. Um, he has looked into uh, neurobiology, uh, neuroscience, psychology, and a whole other uh, array of fields to explain what the literal difference is between these two hemispheres, what their functions are, how they work independently of one another, how they work uh, and complement one another, how there's a kind of uh, asymmetrical balance to the way that they help an individual to exist in the world. But more importantly, these two hemispheres have a whole different set of values, priorities, ways of attending to or uh, paying attention to reality and thoughts and what exists outside of us. And he cites over and over again how this has been demonstrated in uh, the biological world, how animals who perceive things, including us, uh, with our left eyes uh, reach a, or get processed, that information gets processed by the right side of the brain. And 
what all of those perceptions entail and what they're designed to do in the way that we interact with the world. And the same for what we perceive through our right eye and how that's processed by the left part of our brain or hemisphere. So the brain, it seems, is this biological uh, thing that uh, is our machinery that uh, we process certain things through on a physical level. Uh, but there also seems to be a, a metaphorical significance to the differences between the left and right side of the brain and how the mind, which, is, uh, which may have a correlation between our two sides of the brain, uh, even has this kind of extra metaphorical uh, correlation. So there is, there is and there isn't a literal correspondence to the mind, to our different hemispheres. And we're gonna get into that and a whole lot of uh, other uh, main points that McGilchrist brings up in The Matter With Things today. I don't, I don't understand that last point you made about the literal and the meta metaphorical links. Could you explain that some more? Sure. So uh, in the literal, we have the way that animals, for instance, perceive the world. Uh, that the right side of the brain, for instance, will respond to um, the context of its environment, that it'll take on things that are in the middle ground, in the background, it'll uh, incorporate different impressions that lend itself to, a, uh, to understanding its environment, where uh, the other side of the hemisphere, for instance, has been shown to narrow down and undertake a grasping of or a, or a direct interaction with through the narrowing of its interaction with its environment. So, so these are the biological things that, that scientists have been able to determine uh, with, with, the, um, with experiments and, and the science that's done on animals and observed in the natural world. Now, when we get to the more metaphorical for instance, which I think bears flushing out because it's a really important part of uh, what McGilchrist is getting at. Uh, there is, through the use of uh, the right side of the brain, an understanding of reality, of reading reality, of attending to our experience and our environment that is understood through metaphor an allegory. And, and so the context is not only uh, far broader in scope um, than just say observing the environment, but its, its context is expanded to include uh, the more ineffable parts of reality, the truths that are perceived by um, poetry and, and literature and, and things of a, of a more uh, broader scope that lend themselves to ambiguity and, uh, and have a more um, or a less kind of black and white uh, um, presentation to our minds. Mm -hmm. But what was, you made a comment about the, 
the link between the mind and the brain and there being a literal link and a metaphorical link between the two? Or did you, or did you just like misspeak? Like, how does that relate? Well, so, so each, each part of the brain. So I think what McGilchrist is introducing is this idea that there, that there are definitely these biological, literal correspondences to the way that we perceive reality. But if we're also talking about the mind, uh, as this, as it's, um, as a kind of non-local, uh, larger uh, context to the brain. If there are ideas that are perceived through the mind uh, that, or, or through the brain, it's, it's only through metaphor. It's not, it's, it's not material in the way that we would interact with uh, our environments, for instance. So I, I don't know if that's more clear or not. Maybe we can flesh that out a little uh, as we go along. Um, but, but it's, it's his explanation of how things, uh, can only be understood on a more metaphorical level, um, that, that doesn't have such a literal, uh, one-to-one correlation to the direct material world that, that we take for granted, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, I still don't understand, but we'll get to, <laughs> we'll get there. Well, so, uh, so much of this is, you know, that, that's interesting because so much of this, I think, is explained by metaphor and allegory. Uh, and, uh, and I'm still coming to terms with it myself that hopefully I will have a better, um, a better kind of uh, way of explaining it for myself and for you. Yeah. Well, he gets like uh, the whole first volume doesn't deal with mind like he'll say he gets to that in the second volume and i haven't read what he actually how he conceives of what mind and consciousness actually are or and how they well yeah what they are how to think about them um so just based on what i've read like in the first volume the starting point for me is is just to make a more a simpler observation that the right hemisphere is what deals in metaphor and can understand metaphor and which is essential for dealing with reality and the left hemisphere has no conception about metaphor can't understand the things that the right hemisphere can through metaphor and that um that all all understanding all language um is based on metaphor so to have any kind of understanding of the world there needs to be uh an understanding of metaphor but and that's that goes very deep but i don't know how deep that goes yet and or even how to think about that so that's the limit of my understanding at the moment Luke, what did you think? Yeah, um, well, I, I've, I'm also just at the very beginning of the of the first volume. So, um, but I think um, just uh, judging by the introduction and the first things he says, um, it's it it seems to me pretty clear where where he's coming from. Namely, that essentially he he's unsatisfied uh, with you know the the prevalent um, kind of uh, materialist uh, reductionist worldview that is, uh, you know, pretty much an established orthodoxy in science and even unconsciously you know, accepted by by many many people. And uh, I, I see this his work, or, the, or I think it's it's really an attempt to uh, to counter that uh, these notions and. Uh, 
uh, I find his approach extremely interesting because um, in a sense, um, <laughs> it seems to me that he's, he's kind of turning the tables, you know, um, against the materialists um, because uh, for me, like the standard or the, the, the standard form of these kinds of reductionist, materialist, whatever you want to call it, arguments is... Uh, what I like to call, you know, to, to pull the Dawkins, because uh, it, it's usually, you know, the argument goes, oh, well, um, so you, you might think, you know, that you have this grand experience and free will and, and this, you know, you see the world as kind of like a, even magical and whatever, but, you know, even though that's your experience, it is just wrong because here's the science and the science shows, you know, it's nothing like that. It's just, you know, machinery and determinism and uh, Darwinism and and all of that. Uh, and he, here comes McGilchrist and, and kind of <laughs> makes a similar argument, right, just in reverse. So he says... Uh, uh, look, guys, you know, um, you might think that there, all all that exists is just material stuff and and just you know billiard balls bouncing around and and uh, everything is uh, predetermined and it's just made of small parts and and all of the materialist reductionist story. But you know, you're wrong. <laughs> Here's my science. <laughs> it's just uh, you're left. Uh, left hemisphere thinking that constructs all this nonsense that has nothing to do with you know like the the bigger picture and and the real reality so so to speak and i find that that move like is 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 pretty interesting um and uh, might might be even you know uh, uh criticized a bit on that ground but i don't think it it there there is a is a good criticism of it maybe we can talk about that later but in any way uh, event um uh, you know, he kind of like a, a committed materialist who, who actually wanted to argue against this point, uh, you know, unless he can like prove that McGilchrist's science is wrong, you know, but if he can't do that, then, you know, he would, he would need to resort to the, to the kinds of arguments that usually come from the other camp, namely, oh, you know, but the science cannot really tell <laughs> tell me about uh, my experience or whatever you know so it, it's it's kind of interesting this this move and and what i really like so far in the book is that um uh that it gives you a way uh, a kind of framework to to look at these issues like from a totally fresh perspective right because um it as you guys I'm sure you 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 know right it's it's really it can be really frustrating to to argue with uh, with uh, this materialist worldview even if it's just you know in your head and just trying to figure it out because as long as you stay in that kind of mode of thought you know in that kind of abstract realm of um of particles and and evolution and and all of that then it's really I mean, you you cannot really escape it, right? So you cannot really argue against because they always find a, a loophole and and some story and uh, some some weird argument. You know why you cannot really trust your your own sense and your own experience and and it's it's really hard and and I think nobody re has really achieved like 
you know, or yeah, achieved victories, so to speak. And and at the end of the day, it, it really comes down as uh, to you know differences in experience, really. And that's what, for example, David uh, Chalmers, who coined the term um, the hard problem of consciousness, right? Um, that's his conclusion as well. You know, at the end of the day, you know, when he argues with Daniel Dennett, um, he he writes in in one of his books like it's just you know. What can I say? We seem to have different experiences, you know, period. You know, I mean, forget all those mm -hmm. arguments, you know, it's just boils down to that. And he, and McGilchrist uh, really, um, he offers a kind of like a, a way out, right? Because according to, to this theory with the, with the hemispheres, you know, the, the, the right hemisphere is that has, the, that has this more holistic um, kind of like non-black and white uh, view and, uh, Uh, can like um, accumulate or how you say like um, uh, account for like a, a very broad experience of life and the world, and then you have the left hemisphere who's like super abstract and constructs like a, a, a very simple simplistic model, and then takes that model and uh, uh, from that mo uh, and constructs reality based on that simplistic model, basically reconstructs reality and then says oh this is reality and uh, and uh McGilchrist actually offers an explanation you know um so yeah it's really it is there are different experiences you know of of each brain hemisphere and and um that's why you know the the, the materialist crowds maybe you know they they just that's their mm -hmm. way of see, looking at the world you know because they're using a certain mode of thought And mm -hmm. uh, if you argue against them, you're using a different mode. So, yeah. So, yeah. so that's I, I found really fascinating. That's uh, the the point you started out with about how he kind of turns turns the tables and turns the argument. Um, I, I'll I'll try to phrase it in a different way because I thought that was really funny too. So, when you look at some of the hardest of hardcore materialists and reductionists, they they will go so far as to say that you know there's no there's no even possibility of um, like really free thought because, because everything's determined from the things below it. So you can't actually think your own thoughts. They're only thought within you. Like something is, you know, a thinking within you and you're not controlling it. It's just somehow determined by your experiences and by your biology. And so it's kind of a, well, it's a ridiculous argument, I think on its own. And I'll, I'll read just a short quotation that McGilchrist has afterwards, but And so, so that argument, you can take that and you can use it in, in many ways. You can, you, can, uh, you can use it in like a, a relativistic way where you can say, oh, well, you only believe that because of your experiences, because of your culture, because you've been raised to believe that or because, or because of your biology or whatever. And so he, he kind of flips that around to the materialists and say, oh, well, you're only materialists because you're perceiving the world through this like left hemisphere and And that you might think that you have all the answers, but it's really just your biology talking. And so it's, it, it can be reduced or it, it can be kind of, um, cause that's not exactly what he's doing, but it's, it's kind of what he's doing. And so it can be, it can be massaged into that kind of form as a kind of Twitter takedown. Um, but, but there's, but to get into that, that way of looking at the world, it's, well, it is interesting because he's, he's basically saying that a lot of the arguments within philosophy and a lot of the conflicting major views in philosophy that have been around for thousands of years, the kind of the, the main, 
um, the main dichotomies or the main conflicts in philosophy. Like you can have, you know, between materialism and idealism or any of those kind of um, contradictory philosophies. He's saying that, well, a lot of those philosophies, a lot of those answers to those questions really come down to the two basic ways of looking at the world. So if you're looking at it from one perspective, that's the answer you're going to get. If you look at it from the other perspective, that, that other one is the answer you're going to get. And it's not to say that these are determined biologically um, as if we have no, um, th- as, as if our, our agency has no influence on how we think and, and wh- wh- how we choose to put arguments together or, or anything like that. It's, it's more of like a lens or an influence through which you see the world that then colors your interpretation and colors the things that you see as possible or impossible. So the things you will accept or reject um, when forming a worldview. And, um, but just on the subject of that kind of determinism um, that a hardcore materialist or reductionist might argue, um, he's got a good quote on page five from the philosopher Hans Jonas, or Hans Jonas, I'm not sure how he, how he pronounces it, um, where he says, um, well, as the philosopher Hans Jonas has observed, there is an unspoken hierarchical principle involved. Then he quotes, the scientist does take man to be determined by causal laws, but not himself, while he assumes and exercises his freedom of inquiry and his openness to reason, evidence, and truth. His own working assumptions involve free will, deliberation, and evaluation as aspects of himself, but those qualities and capacities are stripped away from and denied to the human object or thing that he is inspecting. So this is, I think, the we've talked we talked about this on a lot of our earlier shows on the on Mind Matters, like you know, two years ago. Um, I, I think we we kind of made a lot of these arguments in different words, but. It's kind. It is, I think, the ultimate takedown for that way of looking at the world. Is that is that you can you have to create like a bubble world um, in your in your mind space where all these things don't apply. And as long as you've got that abstract bubble world, then everything can make sense. But only the the things within that bubble world, everything outside the bubble world, still doesn't make sense because you, you can you can imagine a world without free will or you know the ability to reason or the, the you know the 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 actual um, well, rules or, or, or rules isn't the best word, but the, the way reason works, you can imagine that kind of world and you can play with it and see how, how things work within that world. But behind that is there is, a, a, an absolute, you know, presupposition or a, an underlying axiom that reason and free inquiry are possible because that's what you're doing by doing that. So when you have, when you have, um, uh, like a, a Dawkins or 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 a Dennett or someone um, or someone you know some guys that are even more extreme saying certain things. Well, the 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 kind of Twitter takedown is that well, why should I take anything you say seriously if you have no free will and you haven't been able and if, if you yourself haven't constructed this argument based on evidence and based on these these non physical principles? Because when, whenever you reason about something, whenever you re- reason by uh, by logic or by um, by 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 utilizing evidence, you're you're doing something non-physical um, because you have to ha- have a mind space in which you're comparing things and and comparing them to a, a non-physical um, like ideal. There's this thing called truth, and these things work towards it. This kind of evidence supports it, and this doesn't. 
in order to be able to reason, you need a certain degree of freedom. You need the ability to say, yes, this fits or no, this doesn't. If everything is biologically determined, then you have no capacity to actually reason. And therefore, you know, any argument that you make is not actually an argument. It's just, it's just your, you know, your, your vocal cords, um, producing sounds that are based on these mechanical, like, um, you know, impulses in your brain that can't be trusted because it's just, you know, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but we have no way to know because there's no way to actually compare that to an actual truth. Um, and you're just deluding yourself if you think that, that you can even approach that any type of level to truth. It's just all determined by something. And, and we're just passive bystanders who have bystanders who have no ability to comprehend it. And that's like, no, I, the, I, I comp yeah. well, I was just going to jump oh, sorry, in and say ahead. that, uh, uh, it's one of the good things about his introduction uh, is how he introduces this, um, these topics, which he himself says that he is intending to uh, upend everyone's worldviews. Uh, and he's hoping to do it in a way that, you know, is, is closer to the truth and it allows us to have a better understanding of, of who we are as human beings and also uh, what the world actually is and how we interact with it. And there's two uh, two things that he uh, brings up uh, as points of, uh, I guess, like common arguments. Uh, one of them being the, uh, I think he calls it naive reductionism. Where, naive realism? Is it realism? realism? Uh, uh, it might be naive off. realism. Um, where everything is, well... Yeah, it's kind of like that's where the reductionist uh, standpoint kind of, you know, gets taken to its logical conclusion where everything is merely parts. There is no whole. Um, the whole is merely the sum of its parts, really. So you can just kind of totally disregard the whole since it is nothing more than just a sum of parts. So therefore, the whole doesn't matter. It's only the parts that matter. Um, and then he, you know, kind of discusses where the fault lies with that is that there is no discrete non-universe you know we we can't go outside of ourselves uh you can create a mind space where uh it is in this imaginary context you know a, a little thought bubble but even that thought bubble is within your mind which is within the world so there's no there's no way of getting outside of oneself in order to do any kind of evaluation like that. So there there's really no view from nowhere. There's no view from nowhere. So there's no, there's really no parts is his point. Um, in which case, you know, then you have to see everything as a whole, which itself is kind of, uh, uh, it reminded me of, um, uh, Alfred North Whitehead, uh, and his system of, uh, process philosophy. Uh, in that respect, where everything is a whole and and all is interrelated uh, to everything else, and nothing has context outside of its relationship to everything else. Um, so that's like one th one common take on on the situation that he presents. And then the other one is uh, naive idealism, uh, where it's very much the uh, the postmodernist. Uh, view where you only think things because of your upbringing and your uh, indoctrination and your privilege. Uh, and so there's no, there's no such thing as truth or anything 
uh, like that because it's all just you know programmed into you from the beginning, um, and that's that's also wrong because of uh, you know similar reasons. So the way that he introduces these these concepts and breaks them down in coherent logical ways that are they're really like brilliant on the one hand and at the, at the same time like really obvious mm-hmm. um that you're just kind of like it it was it follows through on his intention of like upending your worldview but in a, in a gentle way that he, he says he hopes feels more like coming home than anything else and at least so far that has that's been the case of what i've you know what we've read where it's just kind of like oh oh mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so i'm i'm liking where it's going it it is a very kind of gentle urging uh for people to consider how um this framework might be a tool by which to understand how they interact with the world with their thoughts and their perceptions and just to uh, make a point here he doesn't um he doesn't say that uh, right brain thinking is, um, y- you know, he, he doesn't put it on a, well, he does kind of raise its value mm-hmm. uh, that he is attempting to um, invigorate uh, what it is about right brain thinking that, uh, that should be appreciated and ascertained. Um, however, it's, it's important to realize that it is both types of hemispheric thinking and ways of interacting uh, that we couldn't do without. Um, but his his point of contention, uh, what he's trying to draw attention to, is the idea that uh, Western civilization, uh, the, the way we've come to um, interact with the world, has been um, narrowed down and where we've emphasized this kind of, uh, this part at the expense of the whole way of looking at things, where we, we've taken for granted the larger context and meaning and, and interconnectedness and relationships uh, be- between those parts and, and how a fuller, uh, deeper understanding of how things work together uh, what the fuller context is for everything um, is something that we need to, or we should be, uh, or or we can be aspiring to, um, as opposed to, you know, when when you have a hammer, everything uh, you're, you're looking at appears as a nail, um, which is, you know, getting back to all of the kinds of. Uh, madness of crowds and ideological possession, uh, which he hasn't exactly gotten into yet. You know, this narrowing, this, this, uh, earlier Harrison, you mentioned this filter, this lens by which we can perceive the world gets, gets narrowed down to such a point that, uh, you know, to quote a cliche, we're, we're missing the forest for the trees. Um, so it, it reminded me actually of uh, this um, you know, Philosophy 101 uh, painting by uh, Rene Mag- Magritte. Uh, you know, if, if you ask anyone you know, what this is, naturally they say, well, it's a pipe. And you know, Magritte's gonna say no. 
It's a representation of a pipe. Uh, it is, you know, so it's that, that to me, it was a reminder of just, um, just how much broader uh, we, we, can, we can come to think about things. But, but the, the, there is one part of our mind or one use of a, one hemisphere of our minds that, that tends to narrow things down to such a degree that, um, that it becomes almost um, detrimental to the way we, uh, the way we exist. Yeah, and I think what's what's really important, uh, or a really important point he makes all the time, or like repeatedly, and and I really like that. I think it's really important. Is uh, what he calls, I think, the the big end, right? So that that things just can that there can be different ways of looking at the world side by side, and uh, and he criticizes basically this notion of nothing but so that's what usually like the you know the the materialist crowd is is advancing so that your your mind is nothing but the brain right or uh, your your emotions are nothing but you know evolutionary strategies or, or whatever and uh, um and i think that's really really interesting this this notion of the big and and uh, our left hemispheres i think really hate it right and uh, i know for myself that i you know i can fall in fall into that trap as well so it's, it's really difficult to to really take that seriously to um that there can be different ways of looking at things and they can stand stand, uh, stand side by side even though they seem to you know contradict each other For example, it's, it's sure it's it's useful to look at the brain as a, as a computer, you know, in, in certain certain respects. It can we talk about you know like how how one can be programmed, right, and and how it performs different functions and and all of that, and and it, it is useful in certain respects, but that doesn't mean that it's also not something else entirely, right? So and and these kinds of things it's it's hard in in when you're like um thinking analytically about about things um it's really hard to sustain and i think we we all know a whole lot of examples where where this kind of dynamic uh, can play out i mean what was coming what came to mind for example i mean just to throw it out there i mean uh, the discussion between like capitalism and socialism or something like that right so it's like You know, the analytical mind that wants just to define things, you know, and put it in boxes and uh, um, and say this is true or that is true. And But the thing is, um, there, there are just, there are so many different ways of um, of looking at the world. And it doesn't mean, you know, that every everyone is right and, and we can just, you know, invent whatever we want. And, and there's no difference between right and wrong or between true and, and false. But but there is definitely something to be said about this big and. Uh, and uh, yeah, and, and I found that very, very, let's say, useful even to 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 keep these things in mind when when thinking about the world and it, it also helps um uh understanding different 
different takes on on the same thing basically and and uh, being able to you know go 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 from one level or or way of looking at it to another and um, and gain a, a wider understanding by doing so and not freaking out you know uh, with the first encounter of, of a seeming of a contradiction or something that you cannot really like put put right in your in your in your head if you i don't know if if you if you understand uh, what what i what i mean yes yeah luke actually that's a, a good point because um the, the the ability to to see how something that is um that is contradictory or seemingly contradictory at the same time that this and allows for both uh dimensions of a particular uh, news item or um, fact of reality or seeming uh, paradox to exist simultaneously so that you you don't need to force yourself into just um, accepting and uh, rejecting uh, two parts of you know a story for instance um, or two parts of a you know, uh, a, an object or, you know, um, so, uh, w what is it about, um, particles and, and waves as a descriptor of, is it light or is it, so it's both, um, you know, you, you examine light under one set of circumstances and tools, and you'll see that they're made up of particles. Uh, another way of looking at it uh, would show up the waves uh, dimension of it. And yet it's both at the same time. But if, if you're that scientist who only looks at particles or, or at the same time only looks at waves, you're, you're not going to see how both exist simultaneously. And so that's what he's arguing for as well in, in the end, as you, as you mentioned, uh, the, the truth or, or, or larger reality of something having several different um, dimensions or or uh, sides to it, mm -hmm. and the advantage of the well, he'd say the advantage of the right hemisphere view of the world is that it incorporates the left hemisphere view of the world, but not vice versa. The the, the left hemisphere doesn't incorporate the right hemisphere <coughs> hemisphere view. <clears throat> so like one example of that that I find is um, like if, if you look at something like Darwinism or like evolutionary psychology, like I can see how how a lot of that um, how that perspective makes sense and does does explain a lot of the of the world and human behavior, for instance. So you see like evolutionary psychologists who will look at a human behavior and say, oh, a little it was it is for this kind of um, survival purpose that that it, it serves its function and the reason we have it. And as far as that goes, I, I usually agree with a lot of those takes, but that's not to say that, that that's all that's going on. It's not like a, a nothing but situation. That the, um, There was one example in, um, I, I won't be able to remember the details, but this was from Stephen Porges' book on the polyvagal theory. And he's talking about like the emergence of emotions and how they, they serve this function and the, and the reason they emerged was, you know, A, B or C or whatever. And, um, and you can, 
you can you can pretty much take all the same facts and just add kind of another layer to it and you you have you have that description but you've also got uh, another way on top of it that puts it into a a bigger context that um that maybe it's not that um that em emotions just emerged out of nowhere for for these prior reasons but that uh, that that was always kind of a a potential uh, a potential unfolding to ex to enlarge the experience of of what you know what we what we call life that that there are um well basically that there is a, a larger picture that there is a like a larger even goal or purpose in mind and that maybe a purpose of life is to is to experience the the expand expansion and um and like complexification of the emotional life of creatures but when you're only looking at it from the from the bottom to the top then it then it appears as this kind of totally um um, totally random or uh, contingent, like just just this weird thing happened. This weird thing happened, and all of a sudden we could we could experience these emotions or experience like uh, you know the the ability to to understand mathematics or whatever, and it just kind of came out of nowhere and for no reason. And it just happens that you know it, that it turned out to be useful, um, you know, in certain ways. Um, but maybe maybe that is uh, maybe there is kind of a a. A, a, a full kind of potential there's there's a, a huge potential and the what evolution is is the unfolding of that potential the the manifestation of that potential and um and so you can look at it from just in terms of the um of the the wide the the wide scope and that's like the, one of the most extremes of that would be just kind of like kind of primitive creationism that everything was just created the way it, it is because god wanted it that way um but that that leaves out all of the all of the interesting like uh, details that you get from the the left hemisphere perspective. It's like, well, it's not that simple. If you actually look at like you know there is a there is a progression of life that you see in like in in the historical record, and so it's like the 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 hardcore materialist scientists do do have a point. They've got something on their side, but when you look at it just from their perspective, then you get this kind of um, um, like clinical, lifeless kind of accidental universe where where nothing really makes sense and it's like oh well it's just this or it's or it's nothing but that and but when you but you but i think it's possible to to put the two together and i think that's what mcgilchrist does very well is to to take all of the science and to 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 really um to really find all of those in, interesting de, interesting and like informative facts and details and put them into put them together into a picture and then place them into this wider context where um that others um you know where, where others he goes where others fear to tread in in placing them in this in this wider context and I, and so i i just started the second volume and that's that's where i think things will be getting a lot even more interesting um, because that's where he'll be dealing with things like the the nature of matter and consciousness and um, he's dropped a couple hints on how he how he views like evolution and how he kind of he 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 doesn't from the impression i get just from the few little offhand comments he makes in the book so far he he's not he's not gung-ho for intelligent design but neither is he gung-ho gung for like reductionist materialism so it'll be interesting to see where he goes on that topic but on all others too yeah. Yeah, um, I actually wanted to ask you guys about uh, what, what you think about the, his take on evolution. But um, 
yeah, it seems like we all we all uh, a bit far far from <laughs> from where he actually goes goes into that. But it seems to me like a bit um, like uh, Whiteheadian uh, in a sense. Um, you know that that what you said, Harrison, that they. There seems to be some kind of attractors, you know, like as, as Whitehead, I think, uh, puts it, um, that, that act as a, a teleology, basically, like, mm -hmm. um, that attracts certain developments and, um, and certain, uh, potentials, let's say, um, that, uh, that are possible and, and kind of pull, uh, develop a pull, uh, that, you know, kind mm -hmm. of attracts us, so to speak. Um, so, so I found that found it interesting what what you said uh, um, about you know like kind of like com combining these two perspectives and in that sense I just thought of when I heard you um, talk about it I just thought um, maybe one one could think about you know emotions having evolved you know for for survival and all that maybe it's actually like you said that it is in a way. Um, Uh, a potential that was always there um, is just that it that it must somehow be compatible with uh, with survival, right? I mean, otherwise mm -hmm. it wouldn't work. So, um, and when you look at it from the materialist perspective, then all you see is survival, and then you conclude it's because of the survival that you know all of that happened. Um, but actually, like survival might just be like one condition of the whole thing right so, right, so it's kind of interesting yeah. how yeah yeah it's like uh, the condition right the uh and uh yeah and i thought that that's uh, that's really interesting and that's i could think the kind of insights you can get when you when you follow this 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 end approach right and and uh just um be be cool with it that there are there are some things that you just cannot figure out yet and and that kind of seem to contradict uh, one another there's the uh there's one particularly interesting um point that uh mcgilchrist makes where he's talking about uh this particular mountain i can't remember where it is exactly but you know he gives the the nordic name for the mountain which is it stands for like sloping mountain or sloping hill or sloping rock It's either Scotland or Iceland. I think it's Scotland. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's a Scottish mountain, and then the Nord the Nordics gave it this particular name called you know the sloping rock uh, because that's what it looks like coming from the seas. It just looks like a sloping rock, and then uh, you know he goes through these different various types of people. So, like a physicist looks at this mountain and says, "Oh, it's ninety nine percent empty space," and then you know, 0.1% of something we don't quite know what yet. Um, and then a geologist would look at it and be like, oh, it's all like basalt or something like that. Um, so there's all of these different various ways that you can look at one particular thing. Not, and not any of them are wrong necessarily, but, n but none of them truly encapsulates what the mountain is in total or in totem which is similar to something that we had talked about with uh, uh, Juliana Berembaum mm -hmm. uh, and the talking about language and how language has this, uh, this way of representing a thing, but the thing itself is kind of ineffable uh, in that kind of a way where there's, there's so many different various aspects and, and ways of looking at any one particular thing that 
Um, it's impossible to truly know it in all its complexities. Um, and so you can get a similar, that's how you, I, that's kind of how I see like the, the discussion on emotions, you know, each, each of these different perspectives that have been brought up thus far, each holds its own kind of view, uh, on emotions, which are true, uh, so far as they go, but they aren't, you know, what, what emotions truly are. And I was just thinking that like at a basic level, biologically speaking, it's all kind of coming out of um, biological nervous system function, right? Like the, the, the finer emotions or the higher emotions or the more complex emotions, they're all built out of the apparatuses that kind of stem from being able to feel or to sense. It's all part of this sensational thing, being able to, to feel cold or heat, being able to feel hunger. Those are the very basic uh, building blocks on which uh, higher functions can be built. And then it's a question of, um, you know, whether something decided it wanted to build that out or if it's kind of like, uh, I think it was David Ray Griffin in uh, one of his books on, uh, oh gosh, what was it? Um, it's a green book and I can't remember the name of it. But anyways, he's, talking about uh, saltationism and um, inner gradualism and external saltationism. So that was what he was talking about and how there's this, this inner gra gradual inner development, right? So if you're, uh, if you're able to feel and to sense hot and cold hunger and thirst at these very base levels, and then all of a sudden you're like, maybe there's something more that that can come out of this, like, like you were saying, uh, Lucian, like there's, there's a potential here mm -hmm. and I can recognize the potential. And it's like, I don't, you know, how do I get there? And then eventually something happens. And then, you know, now you have this potential for, for, uh, joy and for anger and for all of these other various things that, um, are just an extension of what was already there before. Yeah. It's well, more than that too. Um, because that's when you see the saltationism, the external saltationism, right? So that's when you get something new that emerges. So the the way I think, the way I remember him describing it is, because Griffin too doesn't like intelligent design, but neither does he like um, uh, Darwinism, um, like in their in their extreme form. So he kind of takes this middle Whiteheadian ground where there's there is a gradualism that, that and, and it's all kind of rooted with within the individual, whether that's a um, you know, a, a fruit fly or a, or a human, and that you have that that level experience of experience, and like you're saying, you've got okay. Now you've got these these uh, ex these sensory experiences, like of hot and cold, and these basic emotions. And it's like once it's like the the experience that you then have with all of those all of those things at your disposal. It then gets you a little bit closer to that attractor, where it's where you can then say. Oh well, well that's possible too. Or and it's an unconscious process. It's not like you're thinking this. It's just this is just the, the voice that we give to the process. And then, and then when it when it grasps that potential, then that potential then becomes instantiated or manifested within within the individual. And that that leads to that to the to the the creation of that new ability or that new sensory experience that, when looked at from the outside, looks like it just came out of nowhere. But he's saying that what 
every every saltation, every new emergence of something in the world, whether that's an evolution or in in just a, a, a person's life, that's the process that's going on is that there are these potentials, these external, well, external, um, that's a, just a way of thinking of them, attractors that the closer you get to them, the more influence they can have. And then that, that, that then they can, and they can then be in incorporated into the, into the being, because that relates to something else McGillicris talks about in the introduction about the nature of reality that, that, um, that we are essential. there's a, an element or a, an aspect, or it's more than that, of, of co-creation, that we co-create the world, that we are creating the world just as the world is creating us. And that's because <clears throat> what Whitehead would say was, is that at, at any given instant, in any given process, we are incorporating all uh, of everything. Everything is influencing everything at any given moment. And we're incorporating all of the, the experience of everything to, to create ourselves. And there's a create, it's creative because everything does it slightly differently. Everything's incorporating everything else in, in a slightly different way from a slightly different point of view with slightly different um, purposes and goals and aims in mind. And so like with our shows on um, uh, James, yeah, James Carpenter's work on First Sight, there's this, um, in the background, <clears throat> we're, we're kind of aware of everything, but because every individual has purposes and like and needs in the moment in a, in a context a lot of that becomes irrelevant so i'm not going to actively incorporate something going on on the other side of the universe in another galaxy because that's going to be irrelevant for me the most relevant things are going to be the stuff surrounding me mostly in my immediate environment at any given moment but then also the things in my in my you know my community my my town or my city my country my the, the world the solar system and it's like the further out you get the kind of the less important and less relevant things become for each individual and so um this kind of gets back to um the point luke and i were making i think about um about survival and, and, it, and you brought up a, you had a good word for it Adam is building blocks. It's like everything, first of all, everything's made of what we think of as matter, you know, the, the periodic table of elements, all the, all the things that we, that we see in the world ourselves. So there are certain limits placed upon what can happen in the universe by virtue of, of the, of the elements out of which we, we are, the universe is made and the, the specific, um, you know, mathematical, physical, um, rules and, and, and interactions that can happen, like, you know, certain elements combine to make, to make certain molecules. And, and there are, there are limits to that. It's like, you can't, you can't take hydrogen and zinc and make water. It's just not going to work. That's one of the limits of reality as we experience it is that it needs to be hydrogen and oxygen. And that's what water is. And so th it, that kind of principle can apply all the way up. Um, but you can't, so you can't reduce everything to their elements because you can't reduce everything to hydrogen and oxygen, for instance, because that doesn't account for water. Water is something qualitatively different than either hydrogen or oxygen. And then the same thing applies on a biological level. You've got kind of like these, these biological building blocks or basics that you have to take into account that must be taken into account for life. And those are the things for survival. So, so of course, whenever you're looking at biology, survival is always going to be this, this bedrock that you're going to have to make reference to. It's not like it can be completely ignored. It's not, it's not like we can think about humans, but we just totally take survival out of it. And then, and we think about humans in those terms, because we'll, we'll get just a, a ridiculous picture of, of humanity that has no relation to the actual facts on the ground. So that's why 
uh, like evolutionary psychology, you know, makes sense because they're, they're looking at something real. They're looking at real conditions. It's just maybe they're not seeing the, the full picture. And this is where um, an idea that he mentions in this introduction, um, I find, is apropos and, and very interesting. He talks about this idea of the limit case. Um, so I'll, I'm just going to read, um, read a couple paragraphs and then see what you guys think. So what does he, how does he put it? So he's going to say, he says basically that this idea of the limit case is, is going to be important in this book. And I don't know if he actually gives a, what I would consider like a very clear definition of the limit case. So he gives various examples to kind of get an idea of what it is. Um, let's see. Um, so the first example he gives is that um, randomness is the limit case of order. And then I'll read the, the paragraph that follows. Um, complexity and simplicity are relative terms. However, complexity is surely, we imagine, a more unusual state of affairs arising out of the agglomeration of more simple elements, isn't it? I believe that this is a mistake, one all too understandable given our worldview, but a mistake nonetheless. Rather, complexity is the norm, and simplicity represents a special case of complexity, achieved by cleaving off and disregarding almost all of the vast reality that surrounds whatever it is we are for the moment modeling as simple. Simplicity is a feature of our model, not of the reality that is modeled. In keeping with this, and don't worry, right now this should seem crazy, inanimacy is better regarded as the limit case of animacy something I will come to later in this book. Potential is not simply all the things that never happened, a ghostly penumbra around the actual. The actual is a limit case of the potential, which is equally real, the one into which it collapses out of the many, as the part particle is the collapse of a quantum field. The particle is not more real than the field, rather it is a special case of the field, in which its field-like characteristics are at a minimum. Similarly, the wholly determinate, were it to exist, which it does not, would be the limit case of the indeterminate. So that's something that uh, I hope that, that we'll come back to after finishing the book, because it's hard, to, it's hard for me to even put into words how, how I understand that, but, but it, makes, it makes sense. I it just makes wish so I could, much sense. I wish I could uh, articulate it better. It's, it's like, yeah. go ahead, Luke. Or are you just agreeing? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, I just, no, I, I agree, but um, I actually uh, really uh, found that I, I'm really looking forward to reading more about that because I, I had this this idea before, you know, about about a li a limit cases um, in, 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 a, in a bit of a different context. And, and I was like thrilled to to have like McGilchrist, you know, not only like um, having thought about this concept, but apparently like, taking it really really far <laughs> because yeah. you know and and i i had thought about it in, uh along, along the lines like you know there's there's always this in philosophy there's always you know these these examples that that you know people work with right so when you when you um, think about language or for example you know you you kind of like think about oh there's a table you know table you know just just before me and so the word table and the object table, so it's kind of like you know that there is a connection, and and then then you come to this kind of realist theories, right? So um, 
Okay, so the word table is just, um, I think, correspondence theory, they call it, uh, is just, you know, corresponds to, to the table and there's this, it, and then there are a bit problems and you think about it, blah, blah, blah. And, and I think it's actually like, uh, maybe that's, it's an example of a limit case, right? So you, because the example is so incredibly, stupidly simple, because you're talking about the table that is in front of you, um, that you can actually like construct a whole like theory around it. Um, but, but it might be just a limit case, you know, because language usually does not, does not work at all like, like that. You know, it's just because of the extreme simplicity, it seems as if, you know, it's just a correspondence between a word and, and an object, but that's, that's not real life. So, so to speak. Right. And so in that context, I, I thought about this idea of of a limit case, and uh, I think he's he's. Uh, it might be really fascinating what he has to say, and and I'm looking forward to it. Like for when he says uh, uh, that uh, you know um, that the inanimate is just a limit case of of the animate, you know. And I think that's really that's a similar idea, right? So you you say okay that that piece of rock, you know, it's 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 pretty dead, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, but. It's just like one simple example of something that is like pretty dead, but uh, there's like uh, uh, tons of things that that is that are like totally alive, right? So um, yeah, it's 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 very interesting. Yeah, I think we'll maybe save. We'll we'll have a, a future show on that because there's there's a lot more that can be said on it, and I don't know if we can say it at this at this point. With, with any degree of clarity. But, well, one thing, like one way of, of looking at that, just to relate this back to the, to the conversation we've been having, is kind of to, to see survival, for instance, as maybe a limit case of, um, you know, human experience. It's like that's, it's, it's, it's the kind of very basic, very basic level of, of human experience that accounts for a lot of it, just like inanimate matter, of course, you know, it makes up, um, uh, well, all of the matter uh, that makes up things, you know, makes up the universe. Um, and, but that it, it's, it's nested within the, a bigger context in which it's, that it's not the only thing that exists. So when you look at like inanimacy, when you look at the inanimate, um, people think of it as inanimate as something opposed to and different from something that's animate when really it is a, a special case of the of the animate mm -hmm. it's just the animate in its most simple form and its least animate form and the idea of randomness being the limit case of order that there that the 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 norm within the cosmos is order but that the 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 least amount of order is in that randomness, which might not even there might not even be such a thing as as perfect randomness. There there could be an an order behind it, um, in the sense that um, that the the randomness only exists within a wider order, um, within a you know within a uh, a more well yeah within a, a bigger order. So maybe I'll leave it at that. For... Well, I just maybe I'm going to have a go at this here. Uh, w one thing that I thought was particularly particularly brilliant uh, in framing everything in this way is uh, it's something that we've talked about in other shows where um, consciousness cannot arise from purely inanimate matter. Like you can't have just purely inanimate matter and then have something new come out from that. Uh, and so, but it can be the reverse where you have 
pure consciousness that then gives rise to something that is seemingly mm-hmm. non-conscious and yet is on a on its on a very very base or basic level and so that's kind of how i'm looking at these uh limit cases is that uh the way that it's normally framed is that these special things come out of nowhere out of something that is seemingly impossible well then if it's seemingly impossible it probably is and you just need to re rethink uh, how you're looking at it. And so then it becomes the opposite mm-hmm. where it's like, ah, order is the name of the game, which makes sense was you look around and you see stars and planets and trees and so on and so forth. Uh, that chaos yeah. is, but a fringe part of that, where it is the least amount of order mm-hmm. as opposed to being the other way around. Yeah. So you look, you, you look at the limit case of something and you assume that that's all there is and therefore, mm-hmm. the actual thing of which it's a limit case is impossible and doesn't make any sense. Whereas if you just flip it around and look at things in terms of the, the, the non-special case, the non-limit case, then the, the limit case makes sense. So, yeah, that's a, that's a cool way of putting it. I think one way he helps to explain this was in his uh, description of dichotomies and how some things aren't a true dichotomy and that so many things exist along a, a spectrum or, or a continuum of, um, uh, of, of reality that there is, uh, you know, you used that word before, you know, nested within that there, there are these things that are, uh, connected to, um, larger pieces of how things exist as a whole that, that shouldn't and, and can't be seen as indirect opposition to for instance, even though they may appear to be that way on the surface. Um, and there was something I wanted to get back to that you mentioned a little earlier, Luke, and that is that, um, you know, w- why do we like this material? Why does it speak to us, I think? And I think that there's <clears throat> this kind of intuitive understanding for, for what he's saying, these ideas that we've, uh, that we're trying to work out for ourselves, but that he completely fleshes out in the full. And, and as you said earlier, Adam, he, you know, he, he, he takes to a, to a logical conclusion in many cases. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to see where all of this goes. I may have been extrapolating a bit too much with the metaphorical side of the brain as it relates to the, to the mind a little earlier, but it is, uh, it's definitely a lot of fun too, to read this stuff and to, to, you know, say, okay, we, you know, where is he? What's his next step in this, in, in this venture? It's going to happen next. Yes. <laughs> Did we have anything else um, that we wanted to add to the mix today or I are think, we good? I think that was, that was all I wanted to talk about. Well, just to give view, viewers and listeners an idea in this introduction it's like 60 pages or something um before we before we started recording luke pointed out that it's pretty much as long as machiavelli's the prince which we covered in a previous show um so it gives an idea of the the scope of the work and in it he deals he's got a a section that we didn't really touch on um where he goes through a couple sections where he describes um some of the the basic some of the basics of the right hemisphere left hemisphere hypothesis so the th- the differences between them so he gives a, a summary version of all the stuff that he'll he'll go through in the first you know several hundred pages and then he 
um, anticipates some objections and criticisms and responds to those. And um, um, yeah, we really just scratched the surface even of this introduction, just to give you all an idea of, of what's going on here. But anything else? Did you have any other I thoughts? Give, I just want to give a, a you know a plug. Uh, I like to, to kind of like do a little motivational speech at the end. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, go ahead. Um, I mean, the thing is 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 super heavy, right? It's super expensive. <laughs> it is uh, as I think I, I I watched an interview with McGilchrist where he said it's longer than the Bible, and <laughs> so um, it's it's really like quite a commitment, as you as you said uh, at the beginning, Ilan. Uh, but uh, I, yeah, I, I really want to encourage uh, people um, to take the plunge. I think there's a Kindle version as well that is uh, cheaper, um, and it's one of the first mm -hmm. books, by the way, that I didn't dare like underlining stuff, <laughs> and, like taking notes, because it's just such a gorgeous, um, gorgeous hardcover book. I mean, they don't make these books anymore, right? I mean, it's just it's just really good, uh, and. Uh, yeah, so uh, I think it is something that you that one doesn't necessarily have to read cover to cover, or you know, or like um, it's it's there's so much in there that even like if you're reading like ten pages, um, uh, there's already so much wisdom in there that that I think it's the kind of book that that could really um, help, you know, like getting getting new ideas, getting your thoughts together. Um, and yeah, so uh, highly, highly recommended so far. Yeah. And the, the pleasure of it is that it's so accessible. And, yeah. you, you know, you read, uh, you read these, um, these little promotional paragraphs by fellow uh, writers that rave about it. And uh, you, you see for yourself, you know, why it's so well lauded and appreciated by so many. Um, you know, you just imagine that, you know, in your own personal library, you you have your own like column with a, with one of those, you know, book stands, you know, and, and you have one of McGilchrist's books kind of sitting there that you, that you refer to and, 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 and read a few pages at a time and meditate you, you upon. You have a pedestal and then the light shines down and angels sing as you <laughs> open it up. <laughs> well, I, I just want to second what you were saying, Luke, is that it is a beautiful book. It's a well-made book. And as you know, I, I kind of like books and, uh, and you just, yeah, like you said, you don't, you just don't see quality like this anymore. It's a well-made book. Um, the paper is high quality, the, the stitching, like the way it's put together, the way it opens and the pages unfold, <laughs> like, a um, and the, even the typesetting, like, um, it's, yeah, it's unique and, yeah. and, and just beautiful. So I, I did underline, I just made sure that my underlines were, were as straight and, and neat as possible. Um, on this one, but yeah, yeah, it, it's I, a good, I switched a good to book. no, no, I have a notebook anyway, and and I just, um, you know, it was was kind of like more work because I always, you know, wrote page 45, blah 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 blah, and it's it's more work than just underlining, but somehow I couldn't bring myself <laughs> because it's just so so beautiful. But uh, but then you know, I, I I had a peanut finger and you know, messed it up from the side anyway. And I was like, ah, maybe I can just go ahead and, and ride into it. Right. I was drinking a coffee this morning while reading. And I, I thought, don't you dare get sloppy with that coffee. You're not going to get a drop of that coffee on this book. It's too, too nice. 
But just a quick rant before we close up. That reminds me of, I mean, you know, <clears throat> I mentioned they don't make books like this anymore. Some of the books, some of the hardcovers that you get, you know, from even from major publishers, um, and even academic books that are super expensive, you know, like this one, but you know, any kind of university press academic book that they're only expecting to sell, you know, several hundred copies because it's such a niche market. Um, so they'll make a, a, a hardcover and sell it for a hundred bucks or more. Even if it's like a 300, 200 page book, even those books, like, I, I've had expensive academic books like that, that fall apart, you know, cause they've got cheap glue and the pages just end up, you know, coming out and you, you can't, the pages don't fold open when you open it. Um, so if you, if like me, you get annoyed by bad quality books, then just get this book and you know, you'll have a good quality book that you can enjoy. Uh, maybe a little fun, fun fact uh, at the end, because I just remember a month ago, so I, I looked into the video where he had his book presentation, um, McGilchrist, uh, because, uh, by the way, it was out of print apparently in Europe, so I had to wait a lot, uh, a lot of time for it. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, and, and in, in that book presentation, there was one guy from the um, uh, or the editor, I guess. Um, uh, and uh, the story is that he wanted to publish it with uh, Penguin, um, I think, uh, which is like a big mainstream uh, mm -hmm. edition uh, publisher. Uh, and uh, the and they apparently told him, okay, uh, listen, um, you need to basically like quarter it and and <laughs> do like <laughs> like a, a much shorter version of it because it's just no way we can publish this, you know, this, this uh, much text. And then this small publisher got involved, you know, I don't know the name right now, but uh, uh, and so they said, okay, we we don't care if it's co it costs like 130 bucks, you know, we do like an awesome, uh, beautiful uh, two volumes, really thick and heavy book. And so, uh, ho hooray, good for them. <laughs> it's Perspectiva is the name of the publisher. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Um, we hope to be revisiting. The Matter with Things and other ideas by McGillcrest and future shows for sure. And uh, we have a lot in the works that we look forward to sharing with you and presenting to you. And uh, in the meantime, keep safe and uh, keep, uh, keep, uh, keep on trucking. Keep on trucking and keep on thinking with your, with your right brains, if at all possible. Take care. <laughs>